Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. If you signed up for our newsletter at CrimeWritersOn.com, then you already know that Toby won't be joining us for this episode. He's on vacation, but he will be back next week. If you signed up for our newsletter, you also know that Rebecca and I have a book coming out on Tuesday. It's called Dark Heart, A True Story of Sex, Manipulation, and Murder. And you can pre-order it right now and help us have a big opening week. And if you haven't signed up for our newsletter, but you love the show, you should go do it right now. Unless you're listening in the car and wait till you get home. Head on over to CrimeWritersOn.com and sign up. And while you're there, you can also support the podcast by making a small donation using PayPal or Stripe. Or, of course, you can bookmark our Amazon link and use it to do all of your online shopping. So I mentioned Toby won't be here on the show this week. But before he left for a vacation, we made him do one little thing. So here it is. With just a few of the items purchased by our listeners this week using that Amazon link at CrimeWritersOn.com, Rebecca, roll it. Kenson Kids Educational Products. I Can Do It Reward Chart. Blank Supplement Pack. Five blank chore pieces that you can customize. Avon Skin So Soft Bug Guard plus Picaridin Aerosol Spray. King Size Safe Rest Premium Waterproof Lab Certified Bed Bug Proof Zippered Mattress Encasement. Fits 12 to 15 inches high. Designed for complete bed bug. Heather's Tummy Fiber Pouch Organic Acacia Senegal for IBS. Van Halen Steam Rock Fever Civic Center 1979 Live Concert Retro Art Print. Poster Size. Print of Retro Concert Poster. Features David Lee Roth. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is Crime Writers on Serial, Season 2, the podcast about a podcast and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime, and occasionally other podcasts. Today, we'll be talking about Serial Season 2's recent episodes. We'll take a detour into the psyche of Bo Bergdahl with a special guest, and we'll be responding to some of our listeners' feedback and questions and get some new perspective from someone who's sitting in with us today. And joining me to do just that is my true crime co-author and real-life husband, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Rebecca, it's just an honor to be nominated. You are white enough. (laughs) Oh! (laughs) It's going to be that kind of show. Sorry, sorry. And also on the line with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, and licensed private investigator, Laura Bricker. Welcome back, Laura. Thank you. And Toby Ball is away this week, so joining us in his place is our special guest panelist. He's a public radio journalist and host of the excellent, excellent podcast called Outside In. He's also a certified PT stud, Sam (laughs) Evans-Brown. So happy to be on. Welcome to the Crime Writers Thunderdome, Sam. Um, So just checking on your qualifications first, have you ever written or reported on a crime? At all? Yeah, actually, one of in so early, early in my public radio career, I was just general assignment, and I was the low man on the totem pole. So if anything ever happened in the middle of the night, I was the guy who got called. So I remember I was on the job for maybe a couple months when Chief Maloney was shot, and I had to saddle up and head out to the seacoast where there had been a couple of police officers who had been shot by a criminal. Oh, that standoff situation. Yeah, right, yeah, right, yeah, right, yeah. right, right. Okay, so yeah. you're, you're qualified. Are you? Are you? Um, Only okay. barely. Very, very barely. Now, are you qualified? 
for Toby's seat, are you in fact a wet blanket? I would say that in terms of tone, I feel like I'm kind of the anti-Toby, but I am <laughs> I am kind of a skeptic. I, I you know I force myself to ask the devil's advocate questions a lot, which I feel like Toby does kind of as a reflex. Well, one of the things that I've been thinking about, what we would ask you about, because you are a working public radio reporter, and one of the big questions we've and had. You listen to serial. You listen I to serial. Yes. Yeah. You so to you're qualified for the panel. Yeah. <laughs> you are. All it takes the one requirement. <laughs> oh, well, way to set the bar low, Kevin. <laughs> is that you? Um, you do a lot of stories. You do this long form now podcast outside in, and I've actually heard a lot of your edits in the newsroom, so I know what your approach is. And I'm wondering, one of the things that we've talked about a lot this season with this story and how different it is than season one is the use of all of this secondhand tape of the main character in the story and whether or not Sarah's lack of direct contact with Bo is changing the narrative at all or making it less compelling. And I'm just curious to know, I know it's a big question, but let's just start there. What are your thoughts about that? Well, it's certainly, you know, you use what you got, right? And so this is what she's got. I do think it is definitely affecting how she's telling the story. And and in particular, I mean, you all touched on this last week, the way one perceives someone with a quote-unquote mental illness, especially when we're talking about a personality disorder, I think is really different when you haven't had an interaction with that person yourself. And in particular, I think a lot of the people who have met Bo and know Bo are able to sort of explain away, oh, that's Bo being Bo, we heard, you know, with the Ayn Rand email. And I think what a lot of that comes down to is when you have someone who has a personality disorder, it it's just them. You don't think this is someone who's broken. You think this is just someone who's kind of a weirdo. And you're able to sort of commiserate and, you know, get past it. Whereas if you get someone who you've only heard them talking to someone else, you've never perhaps seen them face to face, and then you're handed this diagnosis, it feels much more clinical. And I think that we we see that in the way that she sort of took that diagnosis. One of the emails that we got this week was somebody saying that, I think maybe it was on Reddit, somebody saying that our approach is that we're very like fangirl of Sarah Koenig. And I don't necessarily feel that way. But Sarah Koenig, I think her sort of distinctive style is to just be way like measured. And, you know, you hear the way that she does that in her delivery. She'll be like, well, I don't know. You know, and you hear her do that with this. We heard her do it with Serial Season 1. What do you think of that approach? She doesn't do the declarations that you would hear like a narrative journalist do sometimes where she sort of she, she does do it, but then she sort of also throws in that that very carefully weighing stuff. Well, when we talk about, I mean, whether you, you all are fangirls or fanboys or not, I think. Yeah, thank you, fanboys. <laughs> yeah, it's can be, We're so, fans. Yeah. Or fans <laughs> could just be fans. <laughs> I think that, you know, where I hear that as a listener to both your podcast and hers was how much you guys really, really loved the first season. And for me, you know, I serial season one was great and I enjoyed it. And it was it was sort of a, you know, important in a lot of ways. But after the first couple episodes, you know, there wasn't enough in the story for me to really feel like it merited the episodes that it was given. It was sort of like, okay, you know, it's complicated. We don't know what happened. But there really wasn't there wasn't enough there to really keep me as wrapped as you all were. Whereas with season two, I'm actually much more thrilled with the story because there's so much to it. I mean, you can just keep going in and in and in. And I mean, it's five years worth of material as well, you know, both sides of an ocean. So I think that I hear that when I listen to your podcast, that that you really like the first season and the second season is kind of a come down just because it's almost like it's not the first season. Well, what do you think the best part of season two has been? I didn't really get into the Bergdahl news when it was hitting. So I, I came into this cold. You're a reporter, by the way. I'm just going to point that out. <laughs> but on, on, on a very specific beat. I keep forgetting. I could talk You're all about the radio. Yeah, 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 I, could right. t- I could tell you all about the mercury and air toxic rules if you want. He was hiking, though, so you should have known some of that. <laughs> so, so I came into it pretty cold. I mean, I knew the basic outlines of the story. Mm-hmm. But in a lot of ways, I think that made me kind of the target audience for this. I mean, the people who already had done, you know, a huge amount of research themselves, I think are going to have an opinion starting out. Whereas for me, it was just like, you know, this guy came home, there was talk, maybe he was a traitor, there was some political posturing, and that's all I knew, basically. So for me, it's just been fascinating to hear the story. It's like, oh my God, this guy, what he went through, and and the fact that he became the sort of Rorschach test politically, it's just fascinating to hear. So if we were to ask, you know, what is my favorite part so far, it's been hearing who Bo is and hearing about how you've got 
got this kind of a goofball weirdo who stashed a morning star or whatever the heck it was under the counter at the coffee shop <laughs> winds up you know trying tea to shop tea shop yeah, right. <laughs> try to be Jason Bourne over in Afghanistan I think it's interesting too and I actually think this season is a lot stronger than last season one of the things that you may not know is that we only actually recorded like three episodes about last season of Serial so we got into it late we, we were just, talking yeah. about like the whole thing in three so we were um, I don't know I think our big question though and this is that, that keeps coming up over and over again and Toby always asks it so he's not here so why don't you answer it for him maybe he'll listen back is what is the question I think the question in season one it changed it started out as what do we remember and what does that mean and then it ended up as like did it not do it or not I think really is the question most people thought the season was about is there a central question here is there a central story or is it just a big fat look and if so is that okay hmm all right, so let me let me cogitate on that for just a second here. Laura, while Sam's thinking, do you want to take a crack at that? Yeah, because, you know, one of the things as we've kind of learned more about Bo and who he is and his mental health, and last week we heard about the diagnosis and Sarah went back to the men in his unit to see if their impression had changed. And I think whenever you mention this case, you know, when I mention it to people who aren't really listening to Serial, people have very strong opinions already about Bo Bergdahl even if they don't have all the information. So I have to wonder if, if she's kind of looking at a bigger question of, can we change sort of the rigid opinions that people already have about this case when they learn that it's not as black and white as they initially thought it was? Yeah, I think that's a good answer. I think, though, that if you were to ask, you know, Sarah Koenig was here in the studio, probably what she would say is, the question she's trying to answer is, who is Bo Bergdahl? Why did he go missing? And why did it take so long to bring him home? And in so doing, I think she does what Laura was saying there, which is to flesh out this whole story that has become pretty polarized. Okay, so one of the details that we heard in episode six was we heard about Bo in training. And I thought of you, and I think, you know, maybe you and I had a quick conversation about this the next day after that episode, was this description of Bo Bergdahl as a PT stud. We know from episode one that he is a guy who can run 20 miles. And we know that he does have this innate athletic ability. You are one of like the two people I know who could also run 20 miles and has a lot of the same sort of physical capacity as Bo Bergdahl. And, I'm and the two of us are right here. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Kevin, you are not the other one. Um, sorry. So, you know, when you hear Bo described this way, does this, you know, ring a bell for you internally? Does it make him relatable? Does it make you look at him a certain way? Well, to sort of fulfill the Toby role here and, and play devil's advocate, the first question I had when I heard that is, to what degree is he actually as physically capable as he's made out to be? Because there's there's a guy in town who's a father in the ski team that I coach who was a former Marine and a SEER trainer who talked about being in the military and how, for him, who, who he was an NCAA runner and also a very fit guy. When he went into the Marines, he was sort of shocked at how low the physical standards were. And so we talked about this a little bit, and he told me to check out the, <laughs> the requirements. And the minute Minimum to pass the PT test, you have to be able to run three miles in 28 minutes. And anyone who, who sees that will know that is not fast. I mean, a, a sort of middling high school runner can make that pretty easily. And to get a full score, you need an 18-minute three-mile, which is, again, that's faster, but still, we're not talking about, like, college running material. So I, I look at the, the physical requirements, and I think not only would they be pretty easy to pass and, you know, maybe even pretty easy to get a perfect score on, but also in that environment where the standards are at that level, what does it look like to the other guys when you've got someone who performs like pretty well. You could be considered perhaps a PT stud if you're just like, you know, kind of a fast runner and can do a moderate amount of pull-ups. So that was my first question is, does this guy, is it kind of like big fish in a little pond syndrome where he thinks he's the man because he's surrounded by folks who aren't that fit? So that Marines was, don't have to run fast. They got to shoot well. They got to shoot well. And the, <laughs> That's and also, the Marines. And also they got to run far, right? Like that. So that was the other question I had is, is to what degree they're, they're actually taking the kind of test that would be a good gauge of whether he can do the thing he was trying to do. I mean, a 20-mile run shouldn't take a huge amount of time. Oh, he was, Sam, come on. Look <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. who you're talking to. <laughs> I'm just hoping to do a 5K someday in less than an hour. Well, but no. Do you stop the clock for the heart attack? <laughs> and then restart the clock, like in soccer, where you have like timeouts. So, okay, so if you look at like 
ultra marathons, Sam, right? Just so you know, I will be posting a link to Sam Evans Brown's cool running stuff <laughs> on our website so you I'm guys not, can get some context yeah. about who we're talking I'm about. I'm not here. even that fast. I'm not a real runner. You're pretty fast. So, but but what I was just going to say is, you know, like you look at ultra marathon times, the guys who are qualifying for like Western States ultra marathon are finishing it in under 11 hours. So, it's certainly feasible to do a 20-mile run in the course of a night, right? But the question is, you're bushwhacking. He's going over land. He's going like through fields. He's trying to stay unseen. So the question is, was he really aware of how much longer things take when you're not just running on a road? I don't think there's any doubt that it wasn't a well thought out plan. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think even he will admit, you know, maybe, I mean, it took him about 20 minutes to realize. Uh, maybe I shouldn't have done this. Well, that's one of the things that I want to talk about because I think that we left, you know, I was so focused last week. I think we were all really focused on the diagnosis of the schizotypal personality disorder. And then we got into that long conversation. And there are some threads that I'd love to pick up about episode seven and eight. Some things that we didn't get to. Some things we didn't get to. So let's start with the big one. Let's talk about Mark Bull and his belief about Bo's story being true because, as he says, Bo simply didn't pack for a longer, more permanent excursion. That was a very interesting bit of proof he threw out there. I kind of think you could see it both ways. You know, maybe he was planning on leaving permanently and so didn't take the computer, mailed it. I don't know. Kevin, what do you think about that? I I think it was really super simplistic, yet I think it was extremely enlightening. I I mean, you can argue about whether he really wanted his computer or not, but he didn't, like, like, if he were going away for a long time, you know, why didn't he bring more food? Why didn't he, he bring a weapon? He certainly acted like somebody who thought he was going to hook up with his unit again. He didn't get rid of his uniform. He didn't get rid of his dog tags. One of the things that they're going to have to prove at court-martial to you know convict him of desertion is to prove that he had intentions of permanently leaving and never coming back. So whether or not kind of what he took and how he prepped is something that they're going to look at. You're right. The mailing of the computer, you can look at two ways. He definitely knew the Army was going to take it and look at it when he was gone. So either he wanted to make sure that he'd have it someday again when he wasn't in trouble anymore. But if he really wanted to go away, it would be very easy to just pack that and go. Laura, what did you think about that as potential evidence that Bo wasn't leaving permanently or, or was? Or, you know, what did you think of that entire discussion between Sarah and Mark about the packing and the computer? To me, I, it was definitely premeditated. There's so many things that Bo did that made it very clear that this is something that he had planned ahead of time. It was premeditated, but poorly executed. So I don't know if he even knew what he was planning to do, quite honestly, I think he planned ahead of time. He wrote people emails. He sent some letters. Um, he sent the computer home. But when it came to a lot of the follow through, it just wasn't there. So I, I really don't know if he really had a good sense of what was going to happen once he got out there that was actually realistic. Sam, what do you think? How would you pack <laughs> for, for one of your midnight 20-mile runs through the desert. Yeah, I mean, I hate to be just the guy who talks about running the whole time, but, but you definitely There's need always some, that guy. You need some <laughs> snacks. You need more than just a bottle of water. I mean, you get you get hungry and you, you get hungry quickly. So, I mean, he again, this makes me wonder how much he actually knew what he was doing, if he knew what he was getting into with a 20-mile jaunt through the bush, really. I mean, once you get hungry, you stop being able to move quickly. So you need to have something with you. Would that not sort of lend itself to the idea that if he misjudged how well to pack for what he says was 24 hours, that he really would have been misjudging what to pack and what to take if he were going for a longer period? If he was looking to vanish, he would take more than just some trail mix. But, I mean, you can also make the argument, look, if he was really planning on disappearing – he barely had enough to do this 20-hour thing. Right. But I think it could go either way because look at the other version of the story, which is that he wanted to walk up to an Afghan and say, I want to I want to come into your coochie tent and have a meal and then I want to walk to India. And if he was planning on enlisting the help of others, I mean, I guess that's the counter argument to that, right? That would be like the way that it could be seen the other way. Yeah, you don't need supplies if you're planning on the enemy giving you supplies. Right. And you don't need a computer either. What good would a computer do? Oh, yeah, Rebecca. Like you I'm, could live without oh, a computer. I, I would never I'm just do happy any of this. <laughs> I'm just happy that coochie tent came in again. I'm happy. I'm happy the coochie tent came in again as well. I think that we should bring that up as often as possible. And I'm glad Every that Sarah. I think Sarah had like a really great uh, analogy when she talked about 
about the ice cream truck. She was talking about how everybody was saying like, oh, what would happen if your gun went missing? I want to talk about that. Okay, so here's what he said. He had the axe, which was the big gun, and he asked a soldier who had a, a saw. pistol. Saw. He, had, he had the saw. Some sort of, <laughs> some sort of woodworking tool. <laughs> exactly. A mall. <laughs> a plane. Um, anyway, so he had the saw, he had the, he had the big gun, and then he asked a soldier who had a pistol, and what would happen if your pistol went missing? And that soldier said, I'd get in trouble. And he said, well, what if it wasn't your fault? What if someone took it? What did you think of that? Well, I mean, he was clearly thinking about something, right? And and the question is, what was it? And unfortunately, we can't know his mind. And then the argument's going to be, you know, to what extent is this indicative of anything? You know, it, you're a bunch of guys. You're close. You feel like you can talk about anything. Maybe he was just shooting it and just like he was thinking about some strangeness and asked a strange question and we shouldn't read into it too much. Well, we did hear that that was the dialogue there, that they did have gallows humor and the guy who said, oh, this is going to be way worse than Fort Hood if I get called out again tonight. <sighs> and it sounds like that is the environment they live in. Now, Laura, I have a question for you about a detail that I think was sort of thrown in quickly. It was kind of a throwaway line. I know it stuck out to me and I'm guessing it stuck out to you is that we um, heard that among the correspondence Bo had with people at home, one of the letters he wrote was to a girl he was romantically involved with. Were you surprised to hear that detail? I was. And, and you know me, I looked it up, of course. Um, oh. <laughs> did you use your private detective skills to look it up or did you just look it up on Google like the rest of us? Well, I, yes, but I went to one of my favorite sources of information, the Daily Mail. Oh, because right. They always have all sorts of great details. So it's Monica Lee. And she grew up with Bo and went to the same church as him. And I guess he actually, um, in some of the videos that were made when he was being held hostage, sent little messages to her, basically telling her to go on with her life and not wait for him. But I guess I didn't think of him as having a girlfriend because he had such eccentricities and such sort of odd uh, behavior that everybody was sort of like, well, it's just Bo. But at the same time, I'm thinking, is someone going to put up with that as his girlfriend? And I guess she did until he told her to move on. I thought it was an interesting detail. I mean, I just kept thinking of his relationship with Kayla Harrison and how like adorably awkward it sounded. And, you know, in his the, the way she characterized their relationship, the idea of being able to maintain a romantic relationship just seemed like... It would be a stretch. It's conspicuous by its absence. You know, that we, we get to episode nine, mm-hmm. and then it's a passing reference. And, you know, we, we find out about these people in his life. We understand why there's not a lot of the parents involved, but we hear about them and we know what they're doing. But it was to use that as a throwaway line that he had a, a romantic relationship with somebody stateside when he didn't have very many relationships at all. I think that's why that stuck out. I don't know if there's another reason for that or if that was just an editorial choice. Well, it makes you wonder how serious the relationship was, right? I mean, if you're a reporter and you're digging into something and you find out he has a girlfriend, I'm sure you follow up. I think the question is then if you find that it was, you know, they were together for like three weeks and then and then he, he shipped out. I think that maybe what we could read into that is that it wasn't a super serious relationship. Maybe is what we'll find out. Or right. maybe or maybe it's episode 11. Right. But I think of the editor point of view because you know we can encounter this all the time in our books where we have like a detail like that that we either include or we don't include because either important or it's not you know if we have a character who sort of in the book that we have coming out like the father of the killer for example makes a very brief appearance but we don't know anything else about him and we just couldn't say so he like makes this brief appearance and he's gone and that was one of the first questions our editor asked is why is he here you either need to tell us about him or you need to get rid of him because or explain why he's ex- not ex- here exactly yeah. and this was the reason it stuck out to me is i was thinking like it may be important because my instinct would be to not mention it if she didn't have anything. Well, maybe, I I don't know, maybe she wasn't willing to speak to Sarah, and so Sarah didn't talk her up as much as she might have if she was cooperative, or maybe we're going to hear from her down the road. It does sound like, from what I was reading, that they were family friends for a long time, so she was somebody that he had known longer than Kayla. So I wonder if we're going to hear from her. Well, you know what? Why don't you send us the link to that Daily Mail article and we will post it on oh. our website so that our listeners can read about Bo Bergdahl's ex-romantic interest. You think she works at Lens Crafters? <laughs> no, she was hiking when he was found. She's very outdoorsy. You got to love that, you know, you know, go on without me detail. It's such a, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's straight from the dramatic. action movies. You know, it's funny. I was listening back to episode six this week, the one with the big action sequence and that guy who says, I said, you know, let's do this. Yeah. yeah. I actually said it. (laughs) All I could think about was that these guys were sitting around playing Call of Duty in the barracks all the time. And this is the dialogue they learn in video games about war. I know because I hear it 
in my own house when my own kids play Call of Duty. It's like you hear that, you know. Get some. Get exa- exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You're 14. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> One other detail that we didn't talk about, which is surprising given the nature of this show and how bookish it often is, sometimes I think unnecessarily bookish, is this uh, whole quoting that Bo Bergdahl did of Ayn Rand. And- ah, Ayn Rand. <laughs> 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 okay, Sam, you have feelings about this. Oh God, just like the the it's like the teenage boy crucible of like picking up an Ayn Rand book and it's being like, oh my God, the world makes so much sense now that I've read this. <laughs> yes. and, and then and then it's the you other know, side of the JD Salinger card, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then everyone, you know, you you like read the Fountainhead and everyone wants to be an architect for a couple of years, kind of thing. Oh God, you just feel for him. It's like it's like Bo, just maybe keep away from Ayn Rand for a couple months and you'll come out of the fog. <laughs> <laughs> Lord, did you read any Ayn Rand when you were a teenage boy? No, I did not. <laughs> when uh, you were no. a teenage boy. <laughs> we didn't have that in Vermont. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not exactly, I, I don't know. I read The Fountainhead, but Atlas Shrugged is, I did get a couple of listener emails, though. One of them said that he was angry that Sarah Koenig had spoiled the end of Atlas Shrugged. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let me tell you who John Galt is. (laughs) Okay, so finally, one more detail that we've gotten a lot of email about is Kim Harrison. Uh, She says in her telling of the story about Bose joining the Army that he just showed up in his uniform, and that was the first time she knew that he had decided to join the Army. And a few listeners have said to us, this isn't possible because if Bo hadn't yet gone to basic training, he wouldn't yet have a uniform. Now, Kevin, I don't know if that's possible or not. Do you have any thoughts on whether or not it's even possible? Yeah, when people say that, I say that's right. I mean, you, you know how it is. You've seen the movies. You get on, off the bus, you get your head shaved. I don't shaved. think you've seen the movies is like a, <laughs> no, no, no. Well, I, I a really to, good argument in this situation. <laughs> yeah, unless, and I don't know if this is the case, but unless you get some sort of uh, bonus up front. They do, but they get that for sneakers and other right. kinds of gear. We looked it and up. And you didn't say like, what the uniform, what, whether this is like his, his dress uniform you know, with the squared away beret and all that, or whether this is just fatigues or that army T-shirt. But she doesn't know if he went to the Army-Navy store and bought this. that's what I was going to say. That would sort of fit with Bo's personality, don't you think, with all these sort of magical quests that he goes on? I really wouldn't be surprised if he went out and just went to the Army-Navy surplus, like, you know, and got himself an outfit. For the scene? Because he knew how it would play, and he was just like... Yeah, the dramatic effect. No! I I suppose it's possible, but I think my other question, too, is I buy Kim Harrison and her take. I mean, she's so, like... Open? So does it even matter? I don't think she's she fibbing this way. at all, but it does say something about Bo. Mm. If that's the case, that you wouldn't be issued a uniform until you got to basic training or until you graduated basic training. This could also be a case of misremembrance sure. in some way. I mean, she's she's sort of conflating two scenes, one in which he'd already gone through basic training, came back in his uniform, and one in which she found out he had joined the military through some other means, like, you know, he had a duffel bag or something. Who knows? Absolutely. And I think that's my instinct is to say it's probably that, and it probably doesn't matter. But it's amazing how angry people get when you get the thing wrong that they know about. That's like a phenomenon that we see over and over again. And Sam, I know that you see in your reporting over and over again, someone thinks they know the story, you report it, you maybe don't get a detail right or don't include a detail, and they flip out, right? Yeah, I mean, don't even get me started on energy reporting. (laughs) So many details to get wrong. Uh, Is it turbine or turbine? Have you made a decision on that yet? (laughs) You're not going to like the answer. It's turbine. Yeah, it is. So I want to transition now and hear from an actual expert on some of the stuff we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. For a change. (laughs) For a change, exactly. Dr. Robert Eckstein, he's a professor of psychology and justice studies at the University of New Hampshire. He got on my radar after I heard him on the Missing Maura Murray podcast. He basically contacted them and, you know, gave them a little bit of information. Yeah, you remember him. He was a good episode. He was very, very good. Um, I thought he did a great job adding some weight to that speculation-heavy show. And I kind of thought, you know, maybe someday we could reach out to him and he could add some weight to our show. I think the recent revelations about Bo Bergdahl on Serial Season 2 have given us that reason. So I reached out to him and did speak to him, Kevin and I did, about Bo's diagnosis of schizotypal personality disorder and a couple of other things. So let's take a listen to that and then we'll talk about it briefly on the other side. So your bio says that you're a senior lecturer in psychology and justice studies. I'm hoping you can tell me a little bit about your background beyond that. What's your area of expertise? My area of expertise is 
kind of entirely unrelated to the season of cereal. All of the work that I do at UNH, in addition to teaching, is related to sexual violence prevention and relationship violence prevention. But my undergraduate degree is in forensic psychology. My doctoral degree is in clinical psychology. And I did quite a bit of work related to forensics when I was younger. So I teach the forensic psychology class at the University of New Hampshire. But I'm not a practicing forensic psychologist. I'm a clinical psychologist. It was in last week's episode that it was revealed that the Army diagnosed Bergdahl with having schizotypal personality disorder. Right. Now, now you heard Sarah give an explanation of what that disorder looks like. Can you give us your own overview of what that condition is and how that presents? Yeah, so the personality disorders come in clusters and schizotypal is in a cluster with um, something called schizoid personality disorder and paranoid personality disorder. People that are schizoid really have restricted social abilities and really even like restricted social interests. So people that are schizoid, they just don't have much interest in interacting with others and are often referred to as loners. And people that are paranoid, one of their driving personality traits is kind of a pathological level of distrust not paranoid at the level that somebody like with schizophrenia would be paranoid. And then schizotypal is sort of a, in a way, a combination of those two things. Neither is quite as severe in people who are schizotypal. So they have some of the social deficits that people that are schizoid have, and then some of the paranoia that people with paranoid personality disorder have. So I remember, and this is going to sound so non-clinical, but I remember the very first time I was taught about this as a graduate student, and one of the ways that I teach it, is in complete lay terms, schizotypal personality disorder is kind of the diagnosis that's reserved for people who are just a little bit odd, you know, who are a little bit different or a little bit off, ruling out other major mental illnesses. They tend to have kind of odd thinking styles. They tend to see coincidences where they don't exist. They tend to draw really irrational conclusions from unremarkable information or unremarkable data. They sometimes, this stuff is even more interesting, they'll sometimes have kind of idiosyncratic style in terms of the way they dress or the way that they speak. They're not like remarkably off-putting to people who meet them for the first time, but they're people that others would describe as just a little bit strange or a, a little bit different in terms of how they come across. One of the things that I'm wondering is, you know, we heard a lot about Bose growing up, his own characterization of his childhood, that he ran around alone in the woods following the cat, that he had sort of developed this very intense inner life where he was always, you know, looking for a code, looking for yep. some order, studying people. And it's a little bit difficult to parse out that this personality disorder, can it be, I don't know, is it nature or nurture, I guess is what I'm asking. Do people who have a certain experience in their early childhood develop it, or is this something that this is the way he was wired and this is what was going to happen to him no matter what kind of situation he was born into? Yeah, that's a really difficult question to answer. Traditionally, we've thought of the personality disorders as being a little bit more on the nurture side of the nature-nurture spectrum. So I think being isolated the way that he was when he was younger, I don't know enough about the type of homeschooling that he got, but if there was a really kind of religious kind of fundamental element to his homeschooling that involved um, unique belief systems or isolation, you can imagine that happening. What's interesting, though, about schizotypal is there are a lot of experts who actually consider it more of, you know, part of the schizophrenia family. And we know that schizophrenia is much more of a biological condition. In the United States, we use the DSM to organize mental illnesses, and schizotypal is a personality disorder. In the ICD-10, which is more of an international code, it's actually clumped together with the psychotic disorders. <laughs> you know, as far as we've come in psychology, and as much as we know about the biological underpinnings of most mental illnesses, the exact balance of nature versus nurture is still, the jury is still out on that for most diagnoses. Well, you, you sometimes have people where, you know, after the fact, you can diagnose them and say, their disorder was a contributing factor into the crime that they committed. It seems like in this case that just the precipitating factor is that he was odd and had some sort of unusual thinking, which just led him to leave the outpost and, and walk into a kidnapping. Yeah, it's so interesting because the whole season, it's been kind of building up to that. And in a way, the explanation, although really interesting, is, is pretty simple. This idea, and I've been saying this for several episodes, kind of listening to it and talking to my wife and talking to other people, this idea that everything that I'm seeing kind of on the ground with his group, he was having such problems with that, and he was so concerned with the quality of his leadership and that he and his comrades were you know, being put in harm's way, 
this idea that I will go cause an alarm and then once I do and I explain to everybody what I'm seeing, they'll forgive me and they'll understand that this is necessary. That leap in logic is pretty unusual. I mean, that's a pretty big leap to take that on one hand, you're really concerned about the way that the military is conducting itself. And on the other hand, you feel really confident that if you cause enough of a disturbance, you'll get the right audience and they'll listen to you. That is such a, a unique and idiosyncratic belief. I don't want to say that that's typical of somebody who's schizotypal, but that type of thinking is really consistent with somebody who's schizotypal. We heard that Bo, when he was a teenager, worked, and it seems like he continues to work now on you know, reconciling his point of view with reality. You know, for example, one of the things I thought was really interesting in episode six, when we heard about him in training and we heard that he was characterized as quiet, and then we heard Bo say in his own words, you know, you have to be quiet, you have to listen, and then you have to be helpful based on that listening. You know, it really seems like he is studying human behavior and then trying to put together a set of behavior for himself that works and that works in groups, things that he finds difficult. This is obviously, I know this is not the same, but I, I think about, you know, the show Dexter. We would hear Dexter's inner monologue about how he, he, would, he would do behaviors to try to look like a regular person. But I'm wondering with somebody who has a schizotypal personality disorder, is that behavior then, is it real or is it a construct that they're thinking about actively when they're doing it? Is he like walking into a room thinking, this is how I have to behave in order to be accepted? This is how I have to behave in order to be like one of the, the group? I think it's probably a combination of the two. The people that have personality disorders and are at least, I don't think he would have been aware in terms of like a, a diagnosis. I don't think schizotypal is a word he ever would have used. But he does seem aware enough to know that he's different. So I think what you see from Bo is a combination of like you've got some behavior that is unusual and bizarre because he most likely has a personality disorder. And then you've got behavior that in a way is kind of equally bizarre because he's really trying hard to compensate for the fact that he knows that other people perceive him differently. Up until these last couple of episodes, in the manner in which we've been concerned about Bo's mental health has to do with his survival in captivity. Knowing what you know in your big educated brain, and also as a listener of the podcast, what is your take on what might have been cooking in his kitchen over those five years and whether or not this personality disorder was an advantage or a disadvantage for this really unusual situation? You know what I find really remarkable? That experience that he had in the Coast Guard, which seemed pretty run-of-the-mill, led to him having like overwhelming anxiety. And then five years in captivity, which seemed you know absolutely horrific, didn't lead to the same level of anxiety. So this is a guy with a history of having anxious reactions to life events. You know, people who have schizotypal personality disorder, if they show up for therapy, they're not saying I have a personality disorder. They usually show up because they're experiencing some depression or some anxiety or just trouble socially that's bothering them. So it's really fascinating because he's got a personal history of responding with anxiety to kind of um, difficult life situations. And then he's thrown into the most difficult life situation imaginable, and he seemed to handle it really well. So I think to some degree, people that are schizotypal do spend a little bit more time in their heads and sometimes overthinking things, kind of being obsessed with codes and kind of their way of being. This is an unusual disorder, and it's a very unusual circumstance. So we're not drawing this from lots of cases where we know similar things have happened. But I would speculate that his personality disorder may have served him well to some degree because he kind of had a long history of being secluded, being self-sufficient, living in his head a little bit, plotting, planning. He was doing a lot of those things because his lack of social interaction required that he do so. So I think it might make sense that somebody with those very kind of rigid thinking styles might do well in an environment where you're forced to kind of um, internalize quite a bit. Be very uniquely qualified to, to be in that situation. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. You made a distinction earlier, but I just want to just ask a very simple question because I sort of threw this out there in a previous episode of our podcast. You know, there is a difference, right, between a personality disorder, the type A, and a treatable mood disorder. That's sort of medically a different situation, right? It used to be a lot easier to distinguish these because up until DSM-4, we used an axis system and personality disorders were their own entity on their own axis. In the DSM, they're all together now. But yeah, psychologists and psychiatrists tend to think of personality disorders as qualitatively different 
than just about anything in the DSM. This is a little bit of a crude way of describing this. And sometimes when I use this language, I feel like I'm being a little bit insensitive to people who have personality disorders. But like on the first day of my class, when I try to teach these things in a simple way, I tend to think of clinical disorders as conditions that people have. So, you know, schizophrenia, um, depression, et cetera. Personality disorders are a little bit more the way that somebody is. Their diagnosis is kind of wrapped up into their character. So my question is this now. Bo is now in a you know, military justice court situation. And in criminal justice, obviously, with mental illness, there's really a mixed bag as to whether or not there's empathy and whether or not there's understanding when someone's going through the criminal justice system and say they have bipolar or they have schizophrenia or they have, you know, I think mothers in postpartum depression and, sure. you know, mothers that have, you know, killed their children and so forth. It doesn't seem that, and I I could be wrong, and that's why I'm asking this question, that there's the same kind of weighing of personality disorders. It almost seems like this is who he is, this isn't fixable. Am I wrong to characterize it that way? 100% right. There may be some cases that I'm not aware of, but generally speaking, when you're talking about an insanity defense or other, what we sometimes call like MSO defenses, which is a mental state at the time of the offense, The courts generally have not recognized personality disorders as viable diagnoses for insanity. And I was curious about this because different states use different standards for insanity and the federal system kind of uses its own standard. I looked this up the other day after I listened to that episode. It looks like the system that the court martial or the standard that the court martial system uses, it looks like it's the most conservative in that the language that's used in the standard to plead insanity in a court martial case, it is really, really strict. And it actually specifically states, and I was surprised when I saw this, it specifically says that a personality defect is not a justifiable diagnosis to use for an insanity hearing in a court martial. Yeah, I know it's very difficult. I watched MASH for 11 years and Klinger just never got that Section 80 wanted. Well, Bobby Eckstein, thank you so much for joining us and explaining all this stuff to us. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much. It was fun talking to you guys. Again, that was Bobby Eckstein. He's a professor of psychology and justice studies at the University of New Hampshire. That's Dr. Eckstein to you, Rebecca. (laughs) His mother is very proud of him. It's true. I want to ask you a question. All right. right, Now, if if you lived in Wisconsin and something terribly bad happened in your trailer and you need a mattress right away, (laughs) would you not go to Casper Mattresses at Casper.com? I think I would. Absolutely, you would. Today's podcast is sponsored by Casper Mattresses. Oh, my God. Obsessively engineered (laughs) American-made mattresses at a shockingly fair price. And now you can get $50 towards any mattress purchased by going to Casper.com backslash. Was that a forward slash? It's just slash. It's a slash. It's just you just say slash. Casper.com slash crime. Use the code crime. Uh, listen, you spend about a third of your life sleeping. Right, I'm gonna interrupt you there. All right. You How much to- of your life, Kevin, do you spend sleeping? Uh uh is five twelfths more than a third. <laughs> I spend a lot, but it's about quality and not quantity. It's an def- investment. It's an investment. Sam, you- have you ever been mattress shopping? Uh, no. I know I know that you have because you don't like to buy anything. I, I have. Bet, I bet your mattress is like secondhand, right? Uh, you know, um, I feel like I'm yeah, I'm gonna plead the fifth here. Do you do you sleep on the springs like Bergdahl did when he got to <laughs> <laughs> just sleep just sleep right on the floor. Uh, Laura, have you been mattress shopping? I have. I'm sort of like the princess in the pea. I definitely like the soft mattresses, the pillow tops. So I went around and laid on all the mattresses, of which is a little weird because you're thinking who else has laid on these mattresses, but You yes, know that I'm, is gross. This is, is why you want Casper, because they send right to your house. In the mail. In a box. <laughs> a mattress. How heavy is it? How heavy is it? Oh, it's not that. I mean, it weighs as much as a mattress is, but it's like, <laughs> it is it is like the coolest thing. It is in a box, and it opens up. I'm going to say it's not like when We they, have to tell Laura. Casper sent Kevin a mattress. No, they did not. <laughs> just Kevin. It's just a, it's a single. Kevin get a mattress? He puts it on top of the bed on his side. We actually gave it to our son because he needed yeah. a new bed. But it is pretty cool. It comes in Can a box. Can I finish the mid-roll? All right, go ahead. Is it comfortable? <laughs> I think it is. I laid down on it for a little bit. It seemed pretty comfortable to me. I have to say, the fact that it came in the mail was, I thought, a huge advantage. Yeah. Now, you don't have to, like you know, roll around on mattresses in a store that a million other people have been on. You get this mattress, it's mailed to your house. I don't want to say it opens up like a life raft where it goes poof like that, but it's it's packed 
you know, perfectly. And it's a quality mattress. It's one of these foam mattresses. It's so latex foam, memory foam. It's just like fantastic. Just the right amount of sink. And you get to try it for 100 days. If you're not happy with it, you can you can send it back. But you can save $50 by using that code CRIME at checkout. So Seriously, with, if you're thinking about buying a mattress, use our code, because then Casper will know you heard about it on this podcast. Sure. It's 500 for a twin-size mattress and 950 for a king-size mattress. Wow, that's a good deal. Yeah, it's a totally great deal. And get another $50 off by using code CRIME. There are terms and conditions that apply. Stephen Avery, I just want to say, if you had a Casper mattress... The cops would just say, there's no way this could be a crime scene. That mattress looks too comfortable for anything bad to happen there. All right. That was tasteless, by the way. But I I appreciate what you were going for. Okay, listeners, you can email Kevin Flynn at (laughs) crimewriterson at (laughs) gmail.com. just heard Robert Eckstein there. And part of what we talked about was the fact that, you know, Bo's schizotypal personality disorder was likely an advantage to him during those five years in captivity, but then could specifically actually harm him in the legal process he's going through right now in the military. Laura, in your experience in the civilian criminal justice world and, you know, the treatment of treatable, mentally ill people, we know obviously it's all over the map. It's not necessarily always helpful to a defendant to have a diagnosis. What did you think when you heard this, that the military specifically excludes personality disorders when it comes to weighing somebody's culpability? That's surprising. This is something I had talked about last week because I was wondering how the military court was going to handle this. And to me, that doesn't make a lot of sense because he's still got issues that are affecting how he is behaving to those around him, how he's interpreting the world, how he's acting, how he's reacting, and basically how he ended up in this situation. So I'm very surprised by that. You know, I've dealt a lot with people that um, I talked a little bit about last week ago for competency evaluations at the New Hampshire State Hospital, and there'd be people that were restorable. So they'd go and they'd live at the state hospital for a little while and get properly medicated, and then they would stand trial. And then there were people that were not restorable. And in those cases, a lot of times cases were sort of negotiated down because it was clear that mental illness was, uh, you know, to, to blame and played a big part in what happened. As I was listening to this, I was thinking it's not going to be something's going to help him in the military court. But I wonder if what would help him is testifying because of that face-to-face difference that he seems to have when people see him and talk to him in person as opposed to hearing about him. I wonder if that will sort of help move this issue a little bit to the forefront. Sam, what do you think about this idea that the personality disorder he has was helpful in this protracted, long, painful situation. Again, it makes me think of the endurance sports situation again. <laughs> and the, so masochism. Well, uh, the, the, the ability maybe to run 20 miles without a whole lot of water and like this idea that if you're in here, you can endure. I mean, does that ring true to you or does, what does it sound like to you? Well, even before we heard the diagnosis, I was thinking that this whole sort of way of seeing himself that he had, of you know, sort of like I'm the last action hero kind of thing, probably was helping him in his captivity because he was seeing, you know, as if you're watching the movie of yourself as opposed to just living this experience, it really helps you to, to sort of rise above if you're thinking, oh, you know, just like X person from the movies, I'm enduring and, and stoic surviving as opposed to just sinking into deep despair because it's year four and here you are still getting cut by some dude with a razor blade on your chest. Living in a cage. Yeah. I mean, so I got to believe that the framing of his captivity that he was doing was probably helping him endure. All right. Well, let's move on to some listener comments and questions because we got some really, really good ones. I'm going to start with what I think is one of the most interesting emails we've ever received. Are you guys ready for this? This is, as you all know, who've listened to this podcast, I do check out the credentials of people who email us. So even if I am not able to use their name, I actually do know they are who they say they are. And I will not read the question or comment of somebody who claims to be something that I cannot verify they are. So just know that as you hear these, that these people are legit. This is from someone named D, who, by the way, knows Bo Bergdahl and the Bergdahl family personally and has known them for most of their there. It sounds so strange to say, but I don't want to be too revealing about who Dee is. Most of their life, because Haley is a very small town, of course, and people who live there know each other. 
So here are some of the things that Dee wants our listeners to know about Bo and his family. Number one, they were are very religious. So saying things about women that would be demeaning would never be allowed. The statement that one of the Army's guys said about uh, Bo saying that people in the Army are, quote, pussies. Dee says, not possible. He would never say it. Dee remembers uh, Bo struggling to read and do well in school and always being in trouble, but that he was a good kid and had a sister who did follow the rules, which made it even harder for him. Bo's parents, Bob and Janie, two of the most amazing people that I have ever met. From the moment Bo went missing, they've been the purest example that I have ever seen of love, kindness, and patience. And finally, Dee wants our listeners to know that I don't know why Bo did what he did. I know that he's honest. I know that he'll own up to what he did wrong. I know that he never meant to hurt, harm anyone at all. As someone who knows this family, my prayer is that people around the world listening to Serial and to you guys withhold judgment and hear out his story. Of course, Dee also says that Dee loves our podcast, as do all of our emailers, which I really appreciate. <laughs> um, so, Laura, hearing this you know, account of Bo's family and what they're like, I know that we've done some speculating around that. What do you think? Well, I think it's interesting because, you know, we heard last week Bo saying he didn't have a good relationship with his family. And so hearing this from sort of somebody that knows the family and knows Bo makes me sort of wonder if what Bo's issues or challenges with his family were, were really more tied to his personality disorder and and other things that were going on. And that, you know, it wasn't necessarily some sort of bad reflection on his parents. It's not you, it's me kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, you know, he's got all this other, you know, these things going on, and he's having issues with his parents. But it sounds like from what Dee is saying that you know, that's not necessarily how others perceived his parents. Yeah, I think that that's interesting, too. And I think that when you are a teenager and you're having difficulties with your parents and then you find compassionate people who listen to you, those relationship dynamics with your parents, they become really real once others sort of accept them as part of your story doesn't mean your parents are in any way bad. It could just be that it's not a good fit for you. You know what I mean? That's what it makes me think. Okay, so I have one for you, Sam. Are you ready? Sure. I'm not going to read this email because it's very long. It's actually a commenter from Reddit. It's very, very long. And we got a lot of emails and comments along this line. So basically, there's a lot of pushback about my point of view. Uh, I took Mark Bull's point of view in his conversation with Sarah that... Bo was right by accident, Sarah said. And I really had some justice issues around that. And what this commenter is saying, it seems that Bo's conclusion about the war in general is, quote, right by accident. He didn't say the U.S. was going to lose the war. He didn't say that leaders were making specific tactical and operational mistakes. He was fixated on two minor and relatively inconsequential data points in the vast set that was the war. And he believed they tied into why the war was being lost. So this person basically, you know, is sort of on the Sarah King side of it and we got into some detail. And I know that you had some reaction to that part of our conversation also. So I'd love to know your thoughts on that. Well, <laughs> I will say I, I kind of struggled even to figure out what you were arguing mm-hmm. exactly. That's, you're, not, you're not alone. <laughs> yeah, the rest of us were like, what the hell, Rebecca? Yeah, maybe. So do you, have you have you had a chance to sort of reformulate and maybe you could give us the... You want to walk that back? Well, not walk it back, but, but, but sort of like the purest, most distilled form of what you were arguing. Sure. You know, I just don't like the idea of somebody who might not be able to cope with it being told that what they're saying is wrong just because they can't cope with it. So I don't think, I'm not sure that that's what Sarah was arguing per se. I think what she was saying is that Bo didn't have enough evidence to make the argument that he was making. And it was, in fact, correct. But that was not because he had the, okay, so we're using data point, right? He didn't have the data points to back it up. So I think right by accident is maybe the kind of a derogatory way to put what she's saying, which is just that Bo was right, but he was really just sort of winging it. It was good luck that he was able to get it right. All right, Kevin, I have one for you. All right. I apologize to Tracy, the writer of this email, because she wrote such a long email and I'm going to distill it into like three quick bits. Basically, uh, Tracy is a mental health professional. Tracy says, the tragedy of the Bo Bergdahl case is not about whether he walked away from his post or that the military spent millions of dollars and thousands of hours on his recovery, the alleged breakdown of command, or even the mental health of Bo himself. The tragedy will come when all this is said and done, and no one from the military admits that the greatest failure of this entire operation 
can be pinpointed to the moment when the world heard loud and clear that the military does not want to know the fuck about anything in regard to the mental health of their soldiers. So she is referring to that conversation that Leatherman had with his superior that someone should talk to Bo. Tracy then says, all these men were once little boys growing up playing G.I. Joe. G.I. Joe never found his way to a therapist's office to discuss stress or depression or anxiety. We don't know that. It's true, we don't. Uh, Bo's behavior was outlandish and unfortunate, but I would venture to guess there are thousands, if not more, men and women who are receiving the message over and over again that their mental health is not of concern. She hopes that Serial brings to light the darkness of mental health in the military, that it's real and honest and disgusting. Cobra Commander did go to therapy once a week. Yeah. You know, I, I think that that's actually very true, and this is something we've seen long before the Bergdahl story, which is the military reluctantly coming to terms with the fact that the biggest casualty of the war is stress and PTSD and has always been. And their approach, which has always been stuff it down, be tough, toughen up, that has not worked. While they they obviously give a lot of attention to sort of the, the new medical concerns of this generation of soldiers dealing with wounds from IED, traumatic brain injuries, You know, the other one that is much more common and more prevalent is post-traumatic stress. And it's like if you had a soldier who was in the field and he was bleeding, you wouldn't run past him and say, stop bleeding. You would help him. And he doesn't do his unit any good if he's wounded and, you know, he's trying to fight, but he can't because he's wounded. He doesn't do his unit any good if he, for lack of a better term, if he can't get it together, if he's struggling mentally and emotionally with his mission. You know, I I don't know what's going to happen. I I just really hope long term that we have a better understanding and appreciation for that. So here's a very interesting one that I think goes right to the kinds of things that we like talking about. So I'm going to give you all an opportunity to respond to this one. This is actually from a Reddit user, Gary1717. He says, I do think the second season is a dud. And then he has a little bit of criticism about, you know, Sarah's delivery of it. You're wrong, Gary. But he loves our (laughs) podcast, so I can forgive him for his not enjoying Sarah's delivery. Anyway, he says, this thought occurred to me while listening to this week's episodes. Sarah Koenig made a certain dramatic promise this season that Bo Bergdahl's reason for leaving his post would offer a payoff later in the series. They didn't. He clearly wasn't qualified to criticize his commanding officers and his actions put many more needlessly at risk. The most interesting thing about his experience is his bravery while being held prisoner. As dumb as he was in leaving, he did show tremendous courage while a prisoner and he did manage to escape more than once. I think the show aired by suggesting that Bo Bergdahl had legitimate reasons for his actions, the much better route would have been to emphasize his time as a captive. So, what do you think about the idea that the second season should have been rearranged so that it climaxed with the episodes describing Bo Bergdahl's time in prison and disposed with the unsatisfying contrivance that he might have been justified in leaving the base to draw attention to military injustices? Laura, what do you think of this idea about rearranging the season? Do you think that his being in captivity was more climatic and should have been sort of the apex of the story arc? No, I I actually like the way that it's structured. You know, like Sam, I really had a very superficial knowledge of this whole case. So I think it also sort of us up as listeners because we're hearing in the beginning what he went through and you know really getting a sense of that and then we're hearing the backstory and I'm hoping that we are going to have the payoff in the end and that this sort of setup is going to lead to some sort of a revelation that's going to make us all sort of really come away with this with some real deep thoughts about what happened and maybe thinking about things in a much different context than when we went in you know the season's not over yet we don't know what is to come I would quibble with the interpretation of what Sarah was saying that she was going to set it up so that he had some sort of legitimate reason for running off. I think that what she was saying is that I'm going to explain why he did and perhaps explain maybe his motivation, which is not the same as a justification. So I think that she did that quite well. I mean, we've we basically saw how, you know, there's been some magical thinking. Perhaps he's got some sort of personality disorder and that that led him to believe that he was in the right. What about you, Kevin? Well, during Shakespeare's day, the climax would be in Act 3, and then you would have two more acts of falling action. But as we've gotten to modern storytelling, the climax keeps getting pushed further and further towards the end. And we're not at the end. So we're only been through Episode 8. So whatever the big climax is, it shouldn't come in Episode 8. 
if there's 12 episodes, and we're presuming there's 12 episodes. Right. I will point to this. Serial is doing a lot more tweeting for season two. Yeah, they've really two. upped their digital game this season. Yeah, and by the way, I keep I keep saying the, the artwork on the website with the, the animated graphics yeah. are so beautiful they to really look at. Are. But they had this tweet, parentheses, major key, and the, and the emoji for a key, major key equals all of you listening, episode nine is next Thursday, March 3rd. So I'm wondering if that tweet is saying something major is coming that we're going to find out in episode nine. I don't know. I think that tweet could also just mean that it's key for all of us to listen. <laughs> so, yeah. Or else could be talking so, about the music. Everything's moving into a major key. You never know. Yeah. And, and I'll say, so this is this has been something, another point of disagreement that I've made quietly to myself while listening to your podcast at home Do by tell. myself. Oh, bring yeah. it on now, big boy. <laughs> is that there's been this debate that you all have had about whether we're going to have some big revelation. Has, mm-hmm. she's, has she got something that nobody else knows? And I don't think she does. I already thought it was a major coup to have those unnamed government workers who were talking about Tampa. Ladies. Exactly. That yes. was great. Uh, so, you know, that was already sort of more than I was expecting. And maybe there'll be a bit more of that. But I, I don't believe that there's going to be some sort of huge revelation that changes how we see the Bergdahl case. I honestly think what Serial is trying to do is bring forth this story in all of its fullness that can be done by a reporter who doesn't have access to absolutely everything. I don't think it needs the giant revelation of a, you a worldwide conspiracy or something for it to be satisfying. X file style black oil conspiracy. Oh, that would be so awesome. So you think Obama then is going to be in episode twelve? Is what you're saying? No, you don't need. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need that. But but just the zoom is just this is really interesting, and it's not just this little thing. The farther back you go, the grander it gets, and I we we keep getting teased that we're going to hear more about that because what has to be part of the story is. The cost that we spent to bring him back. That's something we haven't touched yet. And that would be something that would be really would really be missing from the structure of the story. And we haven't even gotten into all the politics. I mean, there's been hardly any mention of politics. And that's got to be at least a whole episode to itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, I just think there's a lot to this story. It's why I like season two better than season one. There's a lot there. There's a lot to dig into, even if there's no revelation. Well, it's time to move on to my favorite part of the show. Sam, are you excited about this? <laughs> I it's love. the crime of the week. Bomb bomb. <laughs> Margareta Evans had not seen or heard from her son Jason in almost 20 years. One day in early June 1995, the then 18-year-old told his mother he was leaving home to follow the Grateful Dead on their summer tour, and then Jason never came home. Evans, now 63, didn't know what happened to her son until she saw his picture in January on a Facebook page devoted to cold cases organized by amateur sleuths. Oh, my God, this is my son, Jason, she wrote on the site for, quote, Grateful Doe, the name given to the unidentified victim of a car accident that killed two people in Virginia 20 years ago. I've been looking for him with no luck. So two decades missing. But thanks to the Internet, she finally may know what happened to her son. So here's my question. We've talked on the show again and again about the many pitfalls of crowdsourced investigation, including Reddit botching the Boston bomber case, people sort of speculating online, showing up at Jay Wilde's house. But here's what I want to know. If you saw a post on a Facebook page like a Web Sleuths page or a Reddit thread and thought you might have the answer to an unsolved case, what would you do, especially given that you know that investigators might not care if you randomly called the police about this 20-year-old matter. What would you do? Would you jump into the fray, Kevin? If I thought I legitimately had the key, I would call the police. If I just had, you know, a, a little bit of an observation that, oh, yeah, you know, the guy's wearing a wristwatch on the wrong arm, you know, I, I would probably throw it out for the purposes of discussion. But if I really thought I could solve it, I'm going to put it on Facebook and just hope that the world fixes it. (laughs) Well, we have seen, though, again and again, that when people are frustrated with not being able to get anywhere with their case, that they sometimes don't have a choice but to go to a place like Facebook and create a page, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There's there's always a choice. You could just not do that, too. What would you do, Sam? (laughs) Uh, So if I had the the key, I mean, absolutely, I'd go to the cops. I guess I haven't had enough interactions with the cops to stop trusting them. You haven't watched Making a Murderer, have you? Yeah. (laughs) 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 Well, I have to say, I mean, what what the the, my big takeaway from this article is that you know it's just another sign that we're headed toward the singularity here. The hive mind is starting to develop, where it's identifying missing people. What about you, Laura? What would you do? 
you if you were sure that you had the key to a mystery that you saw someone had created a Facebook page or thread for, would you chime in and, and give the answer? Oh, yeah, I, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and hopefully I would have the correct information. This reminds me a few weeks ago, I almost got taken by the paving scammers. And for like the second time in my life, you know, those people, they go around and they come to your house. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, what is a paving scammer? Well, I was sick and these people came down my driveway and they were like, hey, yeah, we have some paving left over from a job. Do you want some pavement for your driveway? And I'm like, what? Well, this is a scam they do. And they go around and then they show up and then, you know, they demand cash and they demand more money. So I was so flustered that I like threw them out, but I didn't get their license plate number. So hopefully I would do better if I actually had real information about an unsolved case (laughs) than I did when I almost got scammed. Well, before we wrap it up, I just want to say Reddit user Moggy Mag Feline also thinks that she has something to add to our conversation in solving a mystery. And she says, Toby is the real silver fox. So that mystery has been solved Uh. as well. So we should probably wrap it up on that note. Sam Evans-Brown, he's a reporter at NHPR. He's the host of the truly excellent podcast, Outside In. Sam, what is this week's episode of Outside In about? So we did an episode about a 12-year-old who has decided that he is going to climb Mount Everest. He wants to be the youngest person to climb the seven summits, which are the seven highest mountains on the seven continents. And we, we sort of dive into the real ethical questions there about agency and paternalism and to what degree you know, this is a great idea. A great idea? A great idea. (laughs) I bet that's the kind of thing that sparked a lot of conversation around your little cubicle in the office. Oh, yeah. Everyone took sides. (laughs) Well, that's what's great about Outside In is that that's the theme. It's about how we use the outdoors. It's, you know, it's not just a nature podcast. It's about all those things. Kevin, how how young is too young to climb Mount Everest? Do you think that those parents should let their 12-year-old kid climb Mount Everest? I'm going to listen to what Sam has to say and come back with an educated (laughs) opinion. Laura, what do you think? Would you let your son climb Mount Everest if it was what he really, really, really wanted to do, and he was well equipped and strong, and the and the trainer said he was we would be great at it. Ooh, I don't know. I mean, I had a hard enough time sending him down black diamonds this week. I don't know how I do with Mount Everest. <laughs> would you tell him to take his laptop and trail mix? Yeah. <laughs> Send me a note. All right. Well, Sam, thank you so much for sitting in for Toby and joining us this week. And if our listeners want to find you on Twitter, how can they do that? I'm at Sam E-B-N-H-P-R and hit me up. All right. How about you, Laura? You're on Twitter, right? Uh, yes, at Laura Bricker and it's L-A-R-A. And Kevin, how can our listeners tweet with you? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. Hit me up, too. <laughs> <laughs> Now now you need to drop the mic. (laughs) (laughs) And if you want to send me a tweet, you can find me at Reb Our little show is also on Twitter, at Crime Writers On. So if you've got questions you want us to answer, tweet us or leave a comment on our Facebook page. Just go to Facebook and search for Crime Writers On Serial. You can also send an email with your questions and comments to crimewriterson at gmail.com. And if you love the show, leave a review for us on iTunes. It helps keeps us on the charts and helps other people discover us. Our theme music was performed by the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. And this show was recorded in the beautiful studios of New Hampshire Public Radio. You can find out more about all the crime writers at our website, crimewriterson.com. While you're there, do some shopping with our Amazon link. Check out our Buy Our Books page or make a PayPal or Stripe donation to support the production of this show. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. That was very good. Thank you. You said it with feeling. I said it with feeling. I got some feeling in me. <laughs> Hello. It's Toby. I've been wondering what oh, wait, you wait, bought wait. on Amazon this week. Can you just like pretend to be Toby for a minute? Six pound box of AA batteries. Duracell. Duracell. <laughs>